just the fact, you know, you think about getting shot in the head. Most times you think that's fatal. You know, the stuff we've worked, that's that's like how somebody even survives long enough to be able to drive to even get Mm -hmm. to the hospital. I mean, you're right. You talk about the will to survive, the will to win. It's obvious you've got that. But from the time, uh, how long? So walk us through to after you get the news. You've got to make arrangements, obviously. Just, do they do they bring him back down to Florida? Do you go to Philadelphia? How does that work? So I never, we got the news after the funeral. And so I- Whoa, as whoa. F- wait a minute. Nobody, did they not know or did they just not tell you? They didn't know where to track my mother down at. We were still in Florida. Um had moved over with family on the west coast of Florida. And the story, the story was that they didn't know where to track her down at. And there wasn't a huge push on his side of the family. And I again I won't disparage them. I, I had a hard time with this for a long time. Um, there wasn't a big effort to try and find her from the family's point of view. And so when when they finally did find her information, it was the the city of Philadelphia um, homicide department that called her. I know you don't want to disparage him. I'm not going to disparage him. I'm just going to call out bullshit on something like that. I mean, this is, she's the wife. You're the daughter. He's the son. You absolutely have a right. I mean, you know, getting past a conversation is one thing, not being there for the funeral, like you say, not to see them in the, the ground. It's when my dad passed away, him and I didn't have a great relationship, but it was that finality of knowing, you know, there he is, there's the casket, you know, you make your peace. And I, I got to tell you, had that, ha- uh, I don't know what I would have done, but I would have come unglued if I'd found out after the fact. And the thing is, the family knew where to find you. It's not that they didn't want to. It's that they didn't tell. You're nodding your head. I knew it even before you said it. They knew where to find you. They just chose not to tell Philly PD so that you could be notified. Am right. I wrong? I, I don't think you're wrong. He normally is, just so you know. Well, not on this. I could, I mean, you can smell that. God, I, I'm, look, that's phone call beyond. Um, that is, that hurts everybody and that hurts people for no reason. Why, why do something like that? He's dead. I mean, what's the point to be proved after this? And you're you're right because it didn't it didn't bring any closure or finality and and I didn't have that for a long time until I found out and got the marker for his grave and and went to and even then until I talked to the sergeant and until, you know, until I got the details of of everything and that tracked with me, I didn't have that proof that was he really there? Did he do something to save us from danger? I, I didn't have that proof. And going back to your question, was the the person ever caught? No, they weren't. And I wish I wish I could do something about that. Um and and you know, I I do wish that would happen. Do I do I wish any harm on that person? No, that's not my Just decision some accountability. Just some accountability. Well, yeah, be held be held to the consequences of the decision that was made to kill your dad. And I know, you know, you see things on TV and you see, oh, okay, well, another bad guy's gone or another tertiary character, and you look at it in 2D, but you don't think about whether it's the bad guy or the person that's, you know, suffered for some reason, um, the family's behind that. You just you hit upon the point. That's what I was saying. It's very two D because they don't get down to that third dimension, which is that's you know this. Even if when you look at somebody who's bad, somebody's got a mother, somebody's got a father, right? And the thing is, there's a family behind this. And from what I understand, from what you said so far, and I'm I'm maybe reading into it, but it doesn't even even though your dad was in this business, were you aware of him doing anything violent in the business side of it? Not that he was violent against you, but did he ever do anything violent on the business side that you were ever aware of? No. And I'm glad I wasn't aware of it. And I don't think that he ever did. He just wasn't that, I, I mean, I can't say for certain, but I, he wasn't that type of personality. He was a doer and a pleaser, but I don't, I don't 
think that he ever would have gone there. And that could have be that could be my naivete, but I I don't think so. Yeah, but you know your dad. I mean, and I think back to I think it was episode twenty six, Murph, wasn't it? Luis Navia. We had um, Luis Navia was he was pop he was working with the cartels out of Florida, out of Miami, that area. Um, he was involved with some of the meanest people in the world. You you talk about Rascuño, mm-hmm. people that Rascuño kidnapped, they didn't survive. He survived twice. But you know the thing he said he never carried a gun, never did weapons. Violence was not his thing. Drug trafficking, cartel stuff, that was his thing, right? So there, people get this misnomer that everybody who's involved in the drug trade is violent. No, there are people who make conscious decisions, say, look, this, they treat it like a business. It's an illegal business, but they treat it like a business. Um, well, how did you, how did your life turn around to the point of where, look, you've missed so many days, things got to be so tough, you're finding out about this. First of all, how the hell do you get through high school? And then you go through college. How do you make, how do you make that happen? I think high school was probably the toughest time in my life because I, after that, you know, you talk about that vigilant, like that will to survive and always being in that chaotic kind of hyper vigilance mode that went into devil time for me. And so that was, that was the part that was really tough for me, not knowing something going to happen to my mother and just my, my mindset shifting to that. Not, okay, well, we're moving on from this. There was no moving on. There was no finality. There was no therapy. There was no any of that. Um, And so it was just, I will say, it was just a will to survive and get out of that. In my mindset, I didn't have any anybody to talk to me about college, talk to me about, you know, these, these things and moving forward. It was just sheer just dogged perseverance of, I've got to get out of here. And what is my way to get out of here? Education. That's the only thing in my mind could think of is education. I've, I've got to move forward. Mm, I go that, back to, go ahead, Mark. Sorry. I was going to say, did you guys stay on the West coast or did you go back to the Miami area? We stayed on the West coast at that point. Okay. Go ahead. Mark. Well, there's this whole thing about the seven stages of grief, you know, and part of it's denial. Were you in denial when this happened or did you, did, was there, was there a, faster move towards acceptance because of the lifestyle that he'd been living and the things that you'd been through during that time? Oh, no, not at all. I was in complete denial. Um, I would look for him. My mother would say things like, oh, I saw somebody that looked like your dad today in the grocery store. And so that, you know, it was a great fantasy to have, but not putting and going through those stages of grief and even not... taking the offer from the school for therapy, my mother not taking that. And she only told me about that years later, actually about two years ago. (laughs) Um, Not having any of that to process and go through those seven steps, I think just did me such a disservice and does, you know, for other children out there, does them such a disservice not being able to talk to somebody that's a third party or somebody that's a trusted adult. Yeah, because once you get past, you know, um, denial, then you start getting into anger. When did you, did you become angry? Um, I would say more so sad and angry at myself for the last conversation that I had with him. Because I still wasn't there yet that he was that he was gone and not coming back. I still wasn't there because there was always hope. Because you never went to the funeral. You never really saw the box. You never saw him. You never saw any evidence that said he was dead. All you got was a phone call after the fact. Exactly. And so it wasn't until I talked with the sergeant who worked on the case, saw the evidence, explained things to me that I could I could really put that at, okay, he's gone. Well, I- Tell us about getting through high school, then into college. What what sustained you during this time? Because you know it's it. You, obviously, your world was upended to begin with, with everything going on, and then your dad's killed. That's got to upend things even worse. How do you make it through high school? Again, just dogged perseverance of you know if it's if it's hard, I've got to get through it. If it's I I actually you know, started sometimes grief can manifest physically. And I experienced my first panic attack, I think in 10th or 11th grade, didn't know what it was, didn't know why it was. And so there were often times that I would just go to be by myself during lunch, just, I guess, just biting off those little moments of peace whenever I could, because it was still chaotic at home. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we didn't go from 
rags to riches or from a, you know, a a standpoint. I mean, it was still like, how are we going to get by? But it just, that dangerous element wasn't a part of it anymore. Was there any relief though for you, even, even though the news was bad, was there any relief in terms of like, you're not going to face this danger again, or something's going to change? Or did that enter into your head at all during that time? No, it didn't. And that's because I didn't have that finality. I always thought, okay, if somebody if somebody did this to my father, were they going to be so angered that they said, that's not enough? We go after the family. What would, you know, what would hurt even worse? I don't know anything about, you know, who who killed him, where they came from, what their, you know, cultural norms are in this in this scenario. I don't know. And so that was always in the back of my mind. Is there somebody that's going to come after us? Are we still safe? Are we, it it was throughout until I talked with the sergeant. And how many years after that was it? You said that was after college when you finally said, Hey, I want to talk. Well, let's, before we get to that, let's talk about that. So when you got out of high school, how did you, how did you get into college? I mean, if, you know, if if this was tough now, college is going to be tough too, because now you're on your own. So what, I mean, you have got, and I wanted to ask you this, you talked about, you just had this will to this perseverance. Where did that come from? I mean, with, with, in all due respect, with everything you've been through, you should have been beat down like a, a dog, you know, that was chained up, you know, and, and a whip puppy. You kind of said F you to the world and said, look, um, throw, throw all the stuff you want at me. I'm still going to get this done. Where did that come from? I will say that, you know, I know the statistics are that 50% of, of children who grow up with an addicted parent become addicted themselves, and I went completely the opposite way. I mean, I, I didn't touch a substance, and I made that, uh, I knew in my first high school party what that smell was, but I, you know, I I went to, I would almost say the paranoid side of things of, I don't want to be around any substances or, you know, because I know the element of people that, that deal those substances. I don't want to try anything for trying anything's sake. And so I went completely the opposite and it was a whole new adventure, just going to college and trying to, you know, figure out how that works and, and what do I need to do? And it was just a matter of me finding a counselor, or, but it, just even those life, um, uh, those life skills, not having those, uh, you talk about banking and it, trying to figure all of that out. It was an adventure, but I knew in my mind, for some reason, that was the only way to get out. So I'm, I'm going to guess that your high school grades were very, very good. Is that right? They were pretty good, yeah. And did the was there a high school counselor that, that got you interested in college, or you just knew you wanted to go to college? I knew I had to go to college. There wasn't... I, and And my mother-in-law was a wonderful school counselor for many, many years, her whole career. So I don't say this to disparage, but some people are phoning it in and not there. And I think that's what I experienced in high school. I didn't experience anybody that reached out and said, have you thought of this? Or this is how you do a college application or so any of that. So many people in your background failed you. I mean, the system, they phoned it in. I mean, it's like, ah, oh, here's a kid. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize when a kid hasn't eaten for three days or shows up at school, there's a problem there. I, I want, I'm not going to get off on a rant there because I want to go back and talk about you. So what did you? What college did you go to and what did you decide to major in? What piqued your interest to say, I want to go study this? So I started off at a community college. And the reason why is because I didn't take any standardized test. And then um, why not? shortly there... Um, I didn't know what it entailed. I didn't, it, it was, that it was probably. That life skills, having a good counselor that would have told you, you got to take the SAT, you got to take the ACT, right. here's what you have to do. I didn't have any of that, of that, of that prep. And so for me, it was fear of the unknown of, of going in. And I, I still have difficulty with standardized test taking. Um, and you think you, know, you got so a tough, Murph can't count his feet twice and get the same answer, <laughs> you know. I'll deal with him later, Julie. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so, um, so to me, this was, how do I work my way around it? And, and that was a way for me to say, okay, I can take my grades. I can take, you know, 
my writing skills and I can put that to use, get in there and then, you know, hey, I can, I can transfer to the school I really want to be at and it'll just be a, a short amount of time. Sorry. So what school did you really want to be at and what did you want to study? <laughs> I wanted to be at the University of Florida. And the reason why, not because... Of, not because of any particular program there, because I knew I was just, I was grasping at straws. I knew it was the best. And, you know, for anybody who went to any college in Florida, they're, they're probably going to take this time to use some choice words for me, but (laughs) academically I knew it was the best school in Florida and I couldn't see beyond Florida. I was still in that mindset of like, if I can just get to this point, then I can possibly be a success. So. When I was 13 and, and, you know, that experience happened, one of the things that I realized was there are, and I don't know why I didn't realize, I guess, because I was young um, before this, there's a segment of the population that socioeconomically on the lower totem pole that they don't necessarily have a voice, the kids for certain, but the families too. They don't have a voice. They don't know the right questions to ask. And so at that time, It was just in my heart. I want to be a lawyer. I want to go into the law. I want to give voice to those that don't have their own voice. Um, I I remember, obviously, it was a hard conversation, but my mom struggling to ask the questions that she needed to ask on that phone call. And I was always very brazen that way. I I would talk to anybody um, and, and ask questions. And I thought, you know, I, I want to give voice to people like this. So that's, that's really what I wanted to study. That didn't come until a little bit later, but um, that's, that's what I wanted to go into ultimately. How did you and we'll, we'll cover what you're doing later, uh, yeah. a little later in the interview, but boy, did you meet that. You met your expectations. Yeah. How did, did you thrive once you got to the University of Florida, the Gators? Did you go to any football games? Did you do anything? Did you finally just cut loose and do college shit? <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, I, I have been. I don't think I've ever been a kid. I've, I have always been in that adult. You've been mode. an adult from age seven, five. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> younger. And, and I don't think I just. I didn't know anything different. Um, but I just my. I had horse blinders on. So yes, I did go to a couple of football games, but not being in that mindset, feeling like, listen, I've been there. I've done that. I've seen the bad things in life. What is this? You know, what is this like keggers? What is that? Not being able to have fun in those situations because number one, I don't partake in anything. And number two, it just like, come on, there's, there's nothing I want in, in that. So, no, I never kind of let that down. I would think, um, you know, given your background and what you endured and what you witnessed growing up, that you'd look at, at that college life like, what a waste. This is so frivolous. There are so many other important things, not realizing that there's so many more years after college where you have to be an adult. <laughs> if I could go back and take that all and just soak it all in, I would because you hit it on the head. That's exactly what I was thinking. What nonsense is this? It's the kind of nonsense you look back on years later and you go, damn, we survived that stuff? You know, I just went out to uh, my fraternity. Uh, We have an alumni association. And actually, a guy that was in my chapter in college is now the national president of our fraternity. And people were saying, what do you know about him? I said, I could tell you stories about stuff we did during the summer. Oh, my God. But see, I was like you. I never no drugs, nothing, ever. I mean, it's like I never knew what marijuana was till I went to college. And somebody says, hey, what's that? And it's like... Yeah, it just doesn't appeal to me. You know, I, I didn't drink till I went to college either, but that was 18 back then. Uh, Murph, I don't think there was a drinking age back in the Revolutionary War, was there? I mean, you could drink. There wasn't, but you had to make to your own dam. alcohol. That was the challenge. Yeah, you had to go to the <laughs> How, how was that moonshine? You, yeah, you couldn't go to the package store. You had to make your own. Oh, did you see the picture I posted of you on the Facebook group, Murph? No. Oh, Lord. Uh, go, check, go check it. Speaking oh, of Lord. All right. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, but... So what did when you graduated what did you get you what did you get your degree in? So I got my degree in sociology and that was kind of a- appropriate for me and, and and where I had been and going back to what you just said I I want to because a lot of kids who go through this probably face the same thing in their mindset of 
listen, you, you think about the fraternity and all of the nights and stuff, and I survived that. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I survived so much, please, you know? And, and so going into that, that situation, you're kind of like, like, here, hold my beer. Let me tell you a couple of things. My, hold my, yeah. Proverbial (laughs) beer. I don't, I'm probably one of the only people that you've ever met. Who's never been intoxicated in their life, never been drunk in her life because I wouldn't allow myself to be out of control. Control. I know that was, it was a control. Yeah. After going everything you threw, it's all about control. And it was for me during college too, going through, like I said, the alcoholic parents and stuff, I wanted to be in control. In fact, when I went to college after the first year, I gave up drinking for the next two years because I said I didn't like how it made me feel. I didn't like, you know, what it did. So you get your sociology degree. What about your brother? What about your mother at this time? So my mom is still, um, she's, she's momming and she has more, you know, additional, additional children. Um, with who's now my stepfather, my brother decides that he is going to, you know, he's very successful realtor now, which is, you know, he beat the odds too. And he went that way and he is excellent at it. So he's doing that in South Florida, Southwest Florida. Well, Murph, there's your, you know, you want to buy some property down there. You got a connection now, man. No, you you don't. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going. Well, you don't want him to move to Southwest Florida. <laughs> well, there was a hurricane went through there last year that tore up a lot of things. So let's let's oh. assume that's what she's talking about. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Well, so but after you, after you get college, what do you do after college? What do you do once you get your degree? What's life like? So I take I, I take my first job, and I, I ended up uh, taking the first job of just basically what what I could get instead of, instead of going for what I really wanted, but it taught me a lot. So I, my first job was as a a recruiter, technology recruiter. I don't have a background in technology nor recruiting, but it, it taught me how to sell a pen to anybody in the room. So that for that, I'm grateful. Um, and, and then I, you know, what's interesting is I, I, I have a big spiritual presence in my life and I do I do believe that God really had his hand on me and protected me the whole way and and for all the hardship that I went through I will say that one of the amazing things is the jobs that have come my way have sort of been calls that have come to me um not necessarily anything I've sought out so I've just gone kind of down that path and each one has has taught me tremendously. Yeah, it's encouraging. Um, you know, our regular listeners are probably getting ready to say, oh God, here goes Murph on his little religious rant. But, you know, I love the fact that you recognized what was important in your life and that there was a divine being helping you to get down that path because you've gone through a life that most people never experienced. Most people never even hear about this, maybe in a movie or something like that, which is pretend. But, you know, you live through this. And uh, and that's why I said, you know, in our notes here, I just, I told Morgan, you know, that, you know, you were not going to let your childhood define who you were going to be in life. And you overcame so many challenges that most, honestly, most people probably would not. That's one of the things why I just, and I know we'll talk about this later, but why I just adore um, working around kids and, and kids who grew up a lot like I did in, in one way or another to let them know that, you know, whether it be athletics, whether it be, you know, you're a master welder, whether it be whatever, you are not your circumstances. And I know you can't see beyond it right now, but you're not. And that's really important to me is, is whatever I do in life to, to always reach back down and somewhat be that trusted adult that, that i didn't necessarily have. Well, you've already set the stage. Let's talk about that because let's talk about um, you do the recruiting. You're selling pins to people who don't want to buy pins. You're selling ice to Eskimos and say recruiting is a tough business because people are, and especially in this day and age, this market, people are, uh, the competition for talent is tough. And so you really have to be good at, at making the pitch, as they say. But when did you, when did you start going, okay, I'm not going to just take the job that I, that I have right now, I need to find the stuff that I was meant to do. You talked about law school. How far into this recruiting or after college did you decide, hey, time for me to go back, time for me to hit law school? 
it was the second job in that I had and I, I loved it. And because it was in higher education, I sort of had the bandwidth, <clears throat> my own bandwidth. Now looking back, I'm like, how did I ever ever do that. But um, to go, we have a fantastic uh, law school here in the area. It's uh, Stetson University, Stetson University College of Law. And they are, the, for what I wanted to do, they are the number one trial advocacy school in the nation. And so I thought, well, this is, this is perfect. You know, I'm right here. So in my second job, um, so I did, you know, uh, uh, strategic planning and analysis, talking about jumping completely into a, a well I had no experience with. Um, I, I went part-time. So I went to law school at night, worked during the day and, um, and, 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 and went through it. And, and like I said, looking back, I think, how in the world did I get up for meetings at six to commute and get home at midnight and do, do all of that? I don't, it, everything happens in in the right stage in life where you're you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've got at that age too. I mean, you're still younger. You've got the energy to do it. It it, it the right. season of life really defines. Um, so uh, let people know too. You said trial advocacy. They are the top college for trial advocacy. What does that mean? So that means you know when you see uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys and really the craft and the artistry of what they learn and what they do and even in legal writing and briefing and drafting, um, they really teach you the art of how to do that practically. Yeah, because so, there's go ahead, Steve. You no, know, I wanted to ask you. Um, did, so in law school, you guys uh, probably challenged each other in debates, right? Oh yeah, there's always all uh, always debating. <laughs> How did you do with that? Um, I I think I did I did quite fine. I mean that wasn't that wasn't anything that I had a I had a problem with. Um, so I think I did I did quite well in that area. I can't imagine you backing down from anybody. And 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 I'll tell our listeners so you can't see her. She's a little bitty thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about a little Spitfire. That's uh, a, that's probably a good word to describe you, Julie. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. All right. What was uh, so? We're going to get out of law schools because we want to get into what you're doing now. But what do, what was the area of law that most interested you when you were going through law school? What did you find yourself gravitating towards? Going, I, I dig this. I like this. Okay, so it's it's a little bit odd coming from probably me and and what you've heard about my story, but. Um, Part of not having a voice is also knowing that every every person has the right to a good defense. And so defense work was something that really, really drew me in because that's it's just it's something that is is an art form. Um, it is everybody needs a, a a good defense. Everybody needs a competent defense. And so that's initially what I was gearing towards, but very, very quickly soon after I realized I did not want, there's a certain element of danger depending upon what you do go into there. And I, I didn't, I didn't want any part of that. Yeah. Cause that considering it was Florida, the Miami area, you, it would have drug you right back into the kind of lifestyle that you had just spent all those years escaping. I just I, I I realized quite quickly that hey listen what I'm doing is really what I want to do on on the next level. And just for some of our cop friends listening out there, a lot of people you you think that was ah I wanted to be a defense attorney. Let me tell you, you want good defense attorneys for a couple of reasons. Number one, you want a good process in place so that you know if you've got a righteous case, things are done right. Either you know either you got the evidence or you don't. It's very simple. It's binary. You've got enough. But the other thing, too, is if your ass ever gets in trouble, I always ask the guy, do you want a half-assed defense attorney or do you want a really good one? Oh, well, oh, it's okay. You want a good one when stuff happens, but you don't want anybody else to have a good one. So you can't have it both ways, people. So, yeah, you got to – and look, I had friends of mine that were in the defense bar. One of them actually ended up representing me when I got divorced from my first wife. 
good times. I mean, it was just, we had a good relationship though, because we didn't make it adversarial. You know, it was adversarial on the stand as it should be. But I remember having one defense attorney come up to me. When I was a trooper, I made like a a minor mistake. Like I said, something Avenue instead of something street. And he was trying to make a big deal of that. And he walked up to me and under his breath, he goes, don't worry, I only got a couple more questions. Then he stood back (laughs) and it was like, (laughs) you know, you knew it, but you know, it's a game, right? You got to do your part. You have to vigorously represent. But anytime it starts getting personal and there are a couple defense attorneys and prosecutors who made it personal, that's when stuff went off the rails. So I applaud you for uh, uh, highlighting that. But let's talk about getting into kind of what you were doing now. When you got out of law school, at some point, you end up with big brothers, big sisters. How did you get into that? So that actually, it it was very interesting. And I, I don't say interesting in the conventional way, interesting in that, you know, I, I, I talk about kind of God winks and that was one of them. So the same day, um, there was somebody that I worked with happened to be an auditor and he shoved an opportunity under, under my door, literally. And that same day I got a call from a recruiter, same opportunity, two different avenues, neither one of them knew each other. And so it was for the position of director of federal grants at Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America. And I knew I loved the organization, really aligned with their mission and what they did for kids. And I thought, okay, this is, you know, this is a good jump for me to just see what this adventure is going to bring. And that came in from two totally different sources. Totally different sources. Same day, it was the, you know, the, the, opportunity that was printed out, shoved under my door, and then a recruiter leaving me a message and saying, I think you would be an excellent fit for this, you know, as previously, as I know from recruiting, as you do, but but same, so I knew, okay, I need to jump. And for those of the folks who wonder about, you know, grant writing, if you wondered if your writing or legal skills are going to come into play, when you start going for grants, as I'm, wor- I'm working on, a, I'm actually part of a federal grant right now on a project I'm running, the reporting, the requirements, the, even the applications, all that stuff. Uh, I don't envy all of the applications and stuff you had to do, but, that's, but your skills did come into play at that point. Your legal skills, your writing skills, your reading skills, all of those things come to play. Tell us about the writing, the grants. What, what, when you got in there as the director of grants, what, did, what were they trying to do? What did you end up doing? So we were in a position where we were kind of trying to climb back up and grow our federal grants portfolio. So you have to look at all of that federal regulatory compliance. I won't get into it. It it it'd probably bore half your audience. So, um, but really, my goal was we served about a hundred and fifty thousand kids a year, and my goal was how can we serve more. So let's grow this from a $4 million federal portfolio to when I left a $17 million portfolio, 16, 17. And you have to do that by showing, obviously showing the federal government that you are results and that you are excellent stewards of that taxpayer money. So yeah. And, 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 you know, the byproduct is that is how, how many children are actually able to be helped through this. So does, it was does a four hundred percent increase in funding equate to a four hundred percent increase in the number of kids you can help? It it increases the bandwidth, not to that extent, because you have to think of everything that goes into mentoring a child and and what the cost involved. Certainly, with inflation, I'm sure it's now way more. But you know, the cost involved in that and providing them the right training and and transportation and some sometimes frontline support like food, like making sure that their families have the right resources to be successful. So. When you got into there, it was like probably like jumping into the deep end. Like, had you written grants before? Did you know anything about the process? At that point, I was I was more so overseeing and and with the you know with federal auditing, um, but I was overseeing about fifty four million dollars at the um, where I was at previously in higher education, and so it was making sure that all of the I's were dotted, T's were crossed, and we could we could keep compliant um, to serve our forty five thousand kids. So you know, 
getting into it, it was a little bit different because I was going sort of to the other side of the, like you said, tapping into that legal drafting and, and putting a hook on it and really, really helping people to understand why this was so important. 45,000 kids. Wow. Dang. I, you know, the, the, dealing with you last year was my first experience with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And I, you always hear about those organizations. And you think, man, I'd love to do something. And what little bit I did, I had, a, you know, a really, really great time working with you folks. But um, just thinking about 45,000 children that's being impacted by one program with the objective of helping them get through life, you know, to to learn to be responsible adults, to take care of themselves and not be dependent on others. I mean, what a... What a God calling that is. So when you're in this job, at what point was it? Was it after law school? I think you're saying, when did you finally sit down with the sergeant and dig into what happened to your dad and really come, not totally come to terms with it, but really uh, put your hands around it and finally try to understand what was going on? That was actually the second year in law school. Um, I, I just experienced and, and what spurred me on was, uh, sort of another tragedy that happened. Um, uh, my cousin was killed in a car accident and I thought, you know what, I've sort of avoided it for all this time. And I need to see if I can, I need to see if I can dig down because I need, I had just come from his funeral and I needed some finality and closure and I needed to know the details. And I wanted to just keep that away from my family, but figure that out for myself and just kind of put things to rest. And how did it help? It helped tremendously because I, at that point I could, it was sort of an all at once grieving process, but I could have that finality that now I know if I ever go again to his gravesite, um, even if I don't, I, I know what happened. And I know that he is, you know, he's no longer with us. And I don't even have to think about that as a possibility. So you were kind of denied the ability to grieve for about what, 10, 12 years? Yes. A little, yeah. Yeah. A long time. Well, the reason I wanted to kind of go backwards in time to bring it forward, because getting getting some of that emotional baggage off or dealing with it, did it help then for you in terms of focusing what you wanted to do and set your life goals and then move forward on that? Finally getting that resolved, did that kind of take a big weight off of you? Tremendously. Because, you know, I'm working in this environment. At the same time, I'm getting the opportunity to help kids. I'm also being helped myself because of what we do. Um, you know, we practice what's called trauma-informed care. And through that, I didn't know anything about this. Um, I learned about the ACEs score, the adverse childhood events that kids have. I took the test. I was at a nine. I'm like, oh, wow. And nine out so, of a, nine out of what? Ten. Feel? Oh. Out of a ten. Well, see, you're a perfectionist. You were trying to score a 10, weren't you? <laughs> I, I was trying. I just couldn't get there. But like I said, I wasn't good at standardized tests. So, um, but, but, you know, it helped me to just open up my eyes and give myself permission to say, to kind of, it may sound hokey, but to my younger self, it's okay. You went through a lot. You did a lot. Um, and and you're okay and and to help to look at that for other kids and to to in whatever way that I can to say listen I know you don't see it now but let me here get on top of my shoulders look over the fence that's where you're going to be you're not going to be where you are now and, and and what makes that so important is that's coming from somebody that's been there where those kids are now what credibility yeah. you're not kidding I mean, if that's when people, they, they see, here's what's going to happen. People can't see what we see, but I mean, hair done very nice, very nice dress. You know, you're, you're as they would say, camera ready. People are going to look at you and say, I don't believe it. You, you went through this. You, you couldn't have gone through that because the, they get in their mind. Well, you're supposed to look like this or be like this or be in this certain condition. You basically blow away all of the, uh, the norms that people believe somebody should look like, you know, or be like going through what you did. But, but that's where I think your credibility comes from because people now can look at you and they go, look, if you can, if, if you can do it, 
I got hope now that I can do it. I can get through this because there's no instruction manual for a five-year-old to say, how do I become the parent in the family? No instruction manual for a 13-year-old that finds out their dad's been killed Mm -hmm. and they weren't even at the funeral. You know, there's no instruction manual for how to deal with that stuff. So as I say, you've learned, you've got your degree, not only from the Stetson and, uh, you you know, U of F, but the School of Hard Knocks. And that's the Mm -hmm. one that carries the most credibility. Yeah, and to speak to that, um, one of the things I think we need to just be so, and it's easy to glaze over, but so careful of in this world is judging people when you don't know their experiences or when you think they should look a certain way or when you think you don't know. I always try and give a modicum of grace to everybody because you just don't know either what they've dealt with and what they are dealing with um, or you know, what they're, what they're currently going through, what their kids are going through, you, you, you have no idea. And we don't, we are in a time, and I'm not going to get on my soapbox, where we just, we make, try and make everything so black and white, of course, through the perception of what we think it should be, or what we think somebody should look like. And that's, it, it's not a way, you have to lead with compassion and think with compassion. And, you know, if you're running into a, a cashier that day that is just what you would call a pill, what's happening? What's going on? So I, I, I try and just everywhere in life, whether it's a CEO or, you know, it's the cashier that you're, that you're dealing with, just give grace. You know, it doesn't cost you a penny to treat somebody with respect. You know, the, yep. it's my kids think it's funny because you go through a driving window, or, or you know, you come into some of these restaurants or wherever you go into, and these very, very young people are working behind the, the counters. You know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, and I'm saying yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, to these young people, and they're like, "Dad, I mean, like that could be one of your grandchildren there." You know, well, right. they deserve respect too until they lose my respect. Well, if that's right. one of your grandchildren, you got some explaining to do to Connie. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Thankful she doesn't listen to Game of Crimes anymore after she yeah, was on. Not, not after her episode, what the hell? <laughs> hey, but you did. You said you didn't want to get on your soapbox, but um, I, I heard a story one time, and to your point, this is kind of why I don't even participate in this crap. On, I mean, I'm on social media. I'll watch Twitter, you know, or whatever. Do a little stuff on Facebook, but I refuse to do the shaming stuff where they make a fun. They send a no. picture out of somebody, and I'll tell you where I learned that story from. Uh, and somebody said it one time because this is the stuff you have to learn as a cop because you usually run into people on their worst day, never their best day. And it was a guy was sitting on a, like a train, you know, in New York and his kids are running up and down the aisles and the guy's just sitting there and they're screaming and making, you know, lots of noise. And this guy finally gets tired of it and says, dude, why don't you just do something with your kids? What's wrong with you? He says, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I just came back from the hospital. And he goes, "Uh, my wife just died. Their mother died and I don't know how to tell them. Whoa. You know, talk, their paradigm shift to your point, you, you know, you don't know what's going on mm-hmm. in somebody's life. And one thing I've always tried to do, like you do, Murph, is just like you just try and treat people nice. We go on vacation somewhere. I've seen so many people that are rude to the help, to the staff. And I'll tell you what, there are times where we needed a favor and stuff. And because we treated nice, we tipped well. Boy, I tell you what, they bent over backwards. You know why? Because we treated them as as we would treat our own friends as equals, not as, well, I'm the guest and you're, you know, you're the servant, you know, and this is the way it ought to be. Anyway, I'm off my soapbox. You didn't get on yours. I got on mine. I want to finish up though, talking about pal, because I got to tell you as a cop pal, we had, we had a, we had a league police athletic league. So how did this opportunity present itself? Was it a sledgehammer? Was it a velvet glove? How did you get, uh, how did this opportunity with the police athletic league come up? And tell everybody what your position is with it also, please. So um, I'm the CEO of the National Police uh, Athletic and Activities League, See, which I got, technically I got should friends, be international. Yeah. I got friends in places. Yes. Yeah. yeah you don't have friends. You don't have friends, Murph. <laughs> technically, you don't have friends. Let's do that way. Yeah, it's the international because uh, you, you're as far flung away as New Zealand and Nigeria. Yes, New Zealand, Nigeria, Canada, and and one of my goals for our vision is is really to to build out that global presence because we and, and obviously it's different culturally with the police and and every every different area, but but we've there's so much impact that can be made. Well, how did this opportunity? Because you always talked about God winks and other stuff. How did this opportunity present itself to you? So I had a, a I I. 
you talk about, you know, knowing people at different times of your life. And, and I had somebody contact me and say, you know, I, I think they might be looking for a CEO soon. And is it something that you would, you'd be interested in? And I said, my, my heart really aligns with the mission of what the police athletic leagues are do and the potential of what they can do and the stuff that nobody even knows that they do. Um, and so I said, absolutely. And I know just, <laughs> I, I could get on my soapbox all day about this because I know the potential of, of what, what this organization is and how, how they have helped kids so it came it came to me in a way and it wasn't it wasn't something that was fast moving it was it was carefully thought out and relationships were just built and and the more and more i got into these conversations the more i realized this is a this is a definite yes for me and when did you become ceo of the soon to be renamed international police athletic league <sighs> Well, I, I I came on board January twenty fourth of this year, so it's been about six months of just amazing. You talk about a just a launch for me, and and just knowing the incredible work that is being done all throughout. Well, like you said, internationally. Well, give us the broad brush. Tell us where they are, what things that they do, um, what what you're at now, and tell us what the Julie Redkay vision is for. Pal. So what they do now is they police officers. So this is law enforcement led mentoring. Um, most of the time it's police or sheriff's officers, police commissioners. I mean, there is really a buy-in for this. And what it is, is it's mentoring youth in the community to build those relationships. So a lot of people think of as PAL as athletic leagues. It's so much more than that. So these officers who have relationships in the communities will, they, they treat these kids like they're part of their own family. And we have different programs, educational programs, STEM programs. Um, we have a program called Critical Conversations in which these kids don't even know that they're talking to the police until afterwards. And they have open, honest conversations about how they feel about the police, what they're seeing in their community, asking questions of these adults. And then the adults revealing like the last hour to an hour and a half, you've been talking with the sergeant of such an, of, of Memphis Shelby Police Department. And, and they're blown away because they're talking with plainclothes individuals who they don't have a perception of and until the end. And oftentimes that perception is changed and they build that relationship. One of the things that I was blown away that we, that we do in a lot of our agencies or chapters, we call them, is diversionary programs. So these kids that could go down because they make they make a little decision that may not be the best for their lives, these police officers go into the courtroom with them and they have relationships with the justice departments in their towns and say, I want to recommend, Your Honor, that this child go through the PAL program. We'll give them the training that they need. And if they need, you know, specific, um, if they have specific needs, we'll do that too. But I, I want to give them a chance. I don't want them to have a record. I don't want them to go into life like that. And so we have a lot of programs that are essentially anti-recidivism programs. Fantastic. And how many chapters do you have now? We have uh, just shy of 200 chapters in the U.S. in all 50 states. And real quick, too, what's the, what's the website? So the website is nationalpal.org. And I am on that. And on your board, I see somebody by the name of Rick Zach. Do you happen to know that person? I do. I do. Rick is phenomenal. Rick is a longtime friend of mine from Microsoft. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about a small world. Actually, Rick and I will be seeing each other in a couple of days. This project that I'm working on, Microsoft is a huge supporter of us in this project we're doing. Um, it's to build the first, basically, system for the public. It's Ancestry.com, but for crime. So what we're going to do is connect people to cases, cases to cases, and cases to people in a way that's never been done before. And, and uh, Microsoft and is... 
I'm but, sure Rick Zach is just dreading the next meeting with you. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know somebody. I know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I was, I was looking at some of these folks. I, I, I've known a lot of these uh, corporations and a lot of these folks for a long time. And I'm looking at, uh, um, you know, the composition of your board and I'm looking at the activities and stuff. So, but the one thing I didn't see on here is your name. Mm-hmm. I was looking also. Where is your name? On I even this? put her name in the search box and it doesn't pop up. Why do I not see the name of Julie Redkay on the police, the nationalpal.org site? And you will. That is part of, you talk about the grand vision we're currently working with. We just, just, um, started partnering with a, just a really dynamic marketing team. And so you are going to see an overhaul of our website um, messaging that really, that really cuts to the heart of what PAL does. Um, and we are, we are working on different opportunities to really in, in every community, but nationwide to, to get the message out there so that, you know, people have their perception of, oh, my child was in PAL. They were in this league, but it, it's just, it's it, coming at it from an outside perspective. It's, it's so much more powerful, I think, than is, than is recognized. You know, I, I got to tell you, Julia, um, you know, I'm over in Orlando and uh, just yesterday I had lunch with uh, Lieutenant John Cute. I've been on the department, I think he said 22 years here. And, and um, the reason we're meeting is I found out about the Orlando Police Foundation, which not only represents Orlando PD, but also Orange County, Osceola County and Seminole County. And it does things for law enforcement in those areas and their families when there's a traumatic event, uh, a child with an incurable disease, you know, an officer killed in the line of duty, whatever it might be. And I uh, was talking to him about game of crimes and, and our lunch was like two hours and 45 minutes. So I hope his bosses don't get ticked off at him when they found out where he was that long. But um, I said, uh, I said, as a matter of fact, he said, well, who are some of your guests? And I was going through it. And I said, tomorrow, I got to tell you about this young lady. I said, this Julie Redkay, man, she just impressed the crap out of me a, year, a couple of years ago or last year. And I was telling him all about it. And I said, you know what she's doing now? And I told him about Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And I said, she's with us. She's the CEO now of this organization called the National Police Athletic. And he goes, pal. I'm like, you know that? He's, he's, and he's, you know, John's very smart. He's a whole lot smarter than me. But I was curious, do you guys have a PAL chapter here in Orlando? You know what? That's a, that's something I'm going to have to look into. I believe that we do. I believe Orange County was at our, um, was at our national conference, but um, we'd love to grow it even more. If you need an intro, you know where I am. Happy to take it. Well, let's let's close out um, and and just finish up. Give us the grand vision. So you took uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters from four million a year to seventeen million a year. Um, what kind of a metric or what kind of a goal do you have for Pal? I mean, when when so people when they look at this and they see Julie Redkay's stamp on this in, in five years, where do you want Pal to be? I want us to go from serving one and a half million a year, one and a half million kids to immeasurable you know let's say let's say three and a half million children a year because i want us to i want our growth to reflect that it's really when it boils down to it whether it's whatever youth serving organization it is all about the kids and how many kids we can we can serve um and and we're doing fantastic things on that front. We just had a youth summit here in DC where we brought close to 500 kids. These are children that have never. Some of them have never flown before. I know those were the same kids running up and down the hall in the hotel I was staying at. No, <laughs> let me tell you, I, I, I might have given them the, your hotel number, room, and location. I don't, I'm not saying. Let me tell did, you, maybe. there was a. There was a convention of kids and stuff, but the, the here, let me tell you what the parents did. This, the, 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 the sponsors and the chaperones, they said, you got to be in your room at 10 o'clock at night. Then they went around and they had this tape that they put across the doors and they say, and if that tape breaks, y'all are getting sent home. Well, no. Well, no. <laughs> so they taped, they taped the doors and it's like, oh my God. I like it. I yeah. like it. So I think I, I think you know part of part of the vision is is obviously the number of kids that that we can serve. Part of it, a huge part of it, is developing an alumni champions network. There are so many people that reach out and say, "I was a pal kid," 
or I'll have a t-shirt on and they'll recognize it and say, oh, I I went up through PAL. Well, now what are you doing? Now I'm judge so-and-so or now I'm, you know, I just had a former NFLer call me the other day and say, I want to be engaged somehow. And so getting that together and creating that to where, you know, these folks that want to give back can give back in whatever way it is, time, resources, I think that's that's going to be huge because it shows it shows these kids here you have the CEO of a local pal or you have this welder who has his own business or you have a judge or you have a basketball player they were they were where you were that's that's infinite potential well and, and our listeners if you look at their website across the bottom of the page they have their uh, some of their sponsors scrolling across and it's impressive Oh, yeah. Holy cow, Major League Baseball, Extended Stay America, uh, well, NBA Cares, Academy Sports, Cops, my Noble. Grant, wow. My grant I'm working on comes from one of the offices you got at the DOJ Cops Office, the Community Orient Policing Service. So that's, uh, I'll tell you, good stuff. But, you, you know, I'm going to, I want to close out with this. And let me tell you one of the most important things that you're doing there. And I was on the International Association of Chiefs of Police Community Policing Committee for about eight years. Um, even before they called it that, we knew what it was. It was about good relationships with the community, but it's about a partnership. We've got to get back to that point to where citizens are good citizens. Cops are good cops. Murph and I say all the time, nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. But people have got a responsibility, too, and I see what you're doing there is is to, I don't want to say so much repair as, as much as to say improve that relationship from a young age between the police and the public and the public and the police and the kids and get them to understand. You don't have to, this is not about recruiting kids into law enforcement, but it's about recruiting people into being good citizens. No matter what line of work you do, it's about having ownership in your community, having an interest in your community, and want to be a part of solving problems in your community, not creating them. And I get so damn tired. When I see these videos across the U.S. of people just rampaging and pillaging through stores and doing the shoplifting and all this stuff going on, I'm going, where are the parents? You know, and then to your point, what you're doing, had those kids been given an opportunity, would things be different? Had there been something like a pal or big brother, big sisters, would that outcome have been different? We've got to get these kids out of this cycle that's going on right now and back to we won't fix everything, but man, if you can go from one and a half million to three and a half million, I'm telling you, the it will the effect will be geometric, not just arithmetic. I'll explain that later to you too, Murph, what that means. It'll be exponential. <laughs> Next time you see him, Julie, he may have a black eye. <laughs> I'll kick your good and, knee. Yeah. <laughs> and I agree with you. Um, you're taking and and you may not know this about the about the kids that you're building relationships with, but you're taking oftentimes kids who live in chaos as part of their everyday life. It is their norm. And you're giving them a sense of peace, a sense of trust, that they have somebody that's in their corner. And it's not just from a cliche. I mean, I know this to be true from from my own experience. And just seeing the relief, forget about joys and smiles and all of that, the relief of a child being able to breathe and, and know for that moment down. they're safe they're safe they're at safe. least for an hour mm-hmm. yes that is so important you know if there's uh, if there's anybody that that can reach the objective that you just laid out there and even higher goals short and long term it's you you know i i, I make i don't make a uh i don't beat around a bush about certain things i don't i don't have heroes i have people that i respect and look up to and I got to tell you, Julie, you're right there on the top of that list right now. What you've accomplished in the past with your life, with your professional career, and what you're currently doing is nothing short of extremely admirable. You're setting the standard for other people to follow. You're, you're taking interest in your community and the young people. And as corny and as cliche as this sounds, the kids are truly our future. I think you probably heard me say that with the, the DEA Educational Foundation. We've got to take interest in them, and we've got to do everything we can to help them. And do they aggravate the crap out of me? Of course they do. <laughs> I'm getting to be a cantankerous old fart here, but uh, that you know, when you can take the time to help a child out, and and you know, people say, well, if I could help one child, there's no reason you can't. Just get off your butts and get involved somewhere. And and uh, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm throwing myself under the bus here with you that whatever I can do with the connections I have or, or the people that I know or, or the narco series or whatever I can do to assist pal, as long as you're in the leadership role, lady, I will do anything I can for you. 
I, I, I greatly appreciate it. I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate what you, what you all do. And, and thank you for asking me to, to be on because you're, you're right. It is, it is all about the kids, all of these youth serving organizations. There is, there is so many more kids than there is room, room for these kids to come in and, and, and develop a relationship and be mentored. So it's, it's powerful stuff and they, they are our future either way whether they go through the system or whether they just grow up to become extreme success stories. And, you know, if you need a nerd to come and teach them about computers and stuff like that, well, I'll give you Morgan's phone number. Oh, that sounds like a plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, anything we do, and I want to tell people, go to nationalpalpal.org, yeah. hit that donate button. By the way, if you want to know if you can trust them, having been on the board of a nonprofit before and actually being the treasurer, uh, filling out the 990s and, uh, you know, all the different forms, right? Uh, you are GuideStar. You have a gold award from GuideStar for your transparency. So they, in terms of how they use the money, what they use it for, um, that is the gold standard. I mean, the gold award. So you guys are very transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you guys go over nationalpal.org uh, and subscribe. Oh, look, let's bring this to a close by us saying, hey, look, this is us saluting you. Thank you for what you do. Um, mm-hmm. you, you'll never know the impact you have. But I can tell you this, you know the impact you'll have if you don't do anything, mm-hmm. and that's not the impact we want. So what you're doing makes a difference in the lives of these kids. You guys get out there and support them, nationalpal.org. Hit that donate button. We're going to be checking. All right? So thank you again, Julie. Don't you go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. So a father who she loved her father, which yeah. is admirable, and he he apparently by all me all uh, you know all the in evidence the we have loved her, but he just got involved in the wrong stuff and it cost him his life. And mm-hmm. the way she was treated after that, her family was treated after that. Nobody told her about her dad being killed mm-hmm. and not having answers for years. But in spite of all, in spite of everything she went through, she put herself through school. She put herself through law school. And she basically said, you know, F it. I am not going to let this stuff get me down. And let me tell you what, she may be five foot two, but she's 10 foot tall Absolutely. in terms of what she's done. And I'll I know she's what. actually, she's five foot three uh, because we talked about Michelle Linhart having to poof her hair. So, yeah. Yeah, I tell you what, Julie is that she's a little spitfire. I love the fact of, that what she has accomplished in life. Um, when I talked to her about her position in Powell, she was so excited, you know, and, and her excitement is contagious because it's almost like seeing her come out of her shell since I first met her and we were together in Indianapolis a year ago. So it's, I can't wait to see what I can do to help. I, I don't know that there's anything I can to do, but I've told Julie, whatever you need, you just ask and it'll be done. You've heard me say here on here before, I don't have heroes in my life. I have people I respect. My dad's at the top of the list. Well, you know what? Julie, you're sitting right up here next to my dad, lady. Very, very proud of you. Yeah. Can't say and, it enough. And she has such a compelling story because she was one of those kids that needed that kind of help that mm-hmm. didn't get it. And now she's bringing that help to all of those kids. And it's a mission. It's not just a, it's not just a job. It's a mission. Uh, it's a passion she has. And so um, you guys will put all the information in the show notes where you can go find, where you can go help support out. And if you don't have a police athletic league club in your town or, a, you know, something, go to the website, you know, we'll have it all on there. And you guys in the show notes, you guys can go there and uh, start your, get your club started, help, help out. There's only one way we're going to get these kids today safe and what they need to be doing. They've got to have role models. They've got to have constructive things to do. Being on the streets with guns, with fentanyl, with all this other stuff, gang activity, that's not going to help them. People like Julie Redcake, they're these are the kind of people that are going to change the youth of the youths of America. You know, spread her story around too and let us know your comments about about Julie and and what you think because we'd like to share those with her. Yeah. I want to keep this lady as motivated. She doesn't need us. She's well on her way. She's well past us. But just let her know your appreciation, what your thoughts are, and and the fact that you stand behind her. So we're looking forward to hearing from you on this one. 
Yeah, we do. So, hey, folks, if you enjoyed that episode, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know what you think about it. It's magic. David Copperfield, David Blaine, pick your favorite magician. We don't know how it works. It does. By the way, if you're on Stitcher, get off Stitcher. They're going away. Go to mm-hmm. go to one of the other platforms, Apple, Spotify, you name it, uh, iHeartRadio. Just get on something so you can keep listening to all this good stuff. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. On her episode page, we'll have the links to the International Police Athletic League, all this stuff that you need to know about her. Um, also, follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And then head on over to Game of Crimes Fans. Just go to your search bar and Facebook, type Game of Crimes Fans. Join it. Our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, the, velvet, the Iron Fist with the Velvet Glove, rules over all, will allow you entrance. Just answer a couple questions. Get in there with us. But where you got to be, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, right, Murph? I mean, again, Absolutely. we're apologizing again. Murph, <laughs> this is Murph's fault. We apologize again for the Narcometer review of Miami Vice, the 2006 movie with Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx. We apologize, apologize, apologize. Yes, we do. It's uh, I got big shoulders, so let me have it. But uh, we're, well, we will do better next month. I promise. We probably will. Well, well, probably, maybe. I don't. I get to pick next month, so I don't think we can do much worse. <laughs> no, we cannot. Well, I don't know. There's a couple movies out there. We'll see. So, uh, guys, hey, but look. Appreciate that. Drop your comments in there. Um, you know, support these people. Visit our social media sites, uh, webpage. Head on over to Game of Crimes, uh, uh, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, and, and uh, join in with us because we enjoy bringing this content to you, and we enjoy doing this once again, and enjoy once again we play this game of arcs called the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. Game of Crimes.